The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is designed to elevate black voices through authentically told stories of Africans, African descendants, or allies of the community. Our work is done in service of rewriting the African narrative and reclaiming the brand that represents people of color. My name is Kendawani Mwase, Ethiopian-born, Canadian-raised, and proudly Malawian. I live in the world of business, but find inspiration, energy, and purpose in creative spaces. This show is my passionate pursuit to better understand what shapes and defines culture. It is the manifestation, if you will, of my curiosity. The next episode is our final guest-led conversation for season three. Over the past year or so, we've had the privilege of talking with a number of creators, from artists in traditional spaces to those leading within their fields. From the kitchen to the boardroom, I've had the pleasure of speaking with culture creators whose impact is international and in most cases, immeasurable. Today, that tradition continues with my guest, Rahima Robinson. Rahima is undeniably impressive as a leader in the artistic space. She's a poet, a teacher, and a creative entrepreneur. She comes from a formidable pedigree, but has blazed a trail that's all her own. Her voice is striking. Making spaces for youth and paving paths for progressive movements alike. Fittingly, she'll help us close the show. Well, this season anyways in style. Without further a ramble, the next episode is House of Leeds. My name is Rahima Ibrahim Robinson. Um, Robinson is my family name, my father's name, and Ibrahim is my given name because my family are Muslim. And so Rahima is also a Muslim or an Arabic name rather. And it means, it roughly translates to the most kind and merciful. Um, and so when I give the introduction, many people are surprised to find out that I'm Caribbean because I guess there's this assumption that there's not many black, um, there's not many Caribbean Muslim people, but I am one of them. Is there a big contingent of, of Jamaicans, uh, Muslim Jamaicans even, if you will, um, where you are now in, uh, in London? Um, I'm in Leeds, which is North England. And uh, I do know of a community of um, Caribbean specifically Muslims. I've got extended family myself that are Muslim. Um, with sons and they've moved abroad to 
to Islamic countries um, to continue their lives with their wives and everything like that. So I definitely know that um, it wasn't something that my mother just kind of decided. I think maybe there was an influence um, around her, but Jamaica is predominantly Christian, I will say. And then they're heavy on the Rastafarianism. Um, but for sure in Jamaica and across the Caribbean, you will find some Muslims there. Yeah, of course, of course. So in, in terms of your background, your name, your Jamaican heritage, how much of that is, um, is a big part of your or life or is it a big part of your life is the question? Um, well, the Islam now in my adulthood, it isn't a major part of my personal life. I did go to an Islamic um, school when I was younger, private girls school, and I have to say I didn't really enjoy it, but that might have been more to do with the demographic of the UK, just being literally the only black person in the school. Um, but then it turned out I was, then it, that was a experience I had when I was younger, but growing up, <laughs> I just realised I'm probably always going to be one of the only black people in the room in the UK. Um, so that wasn't specific to, to Islam, but that's just the experience that I had um, in my younger years. Um, mm -hmm. And it felt quite personal at that time. So I don't practice Islam in my adulthood, although my brothers do. Um, but as for my Caribbean heritage, I'd say that's definitely a big part of my my life and just the way um, the way I eat, the way I talk, the beliefs that I have, the way I want to raise my family, especially coming from my grandmother who uh, migrated to England in like the 50s, I think, late 50s, 60s, um, and her being kind of like the matriarch of the family. Um, I've read some stuff online about your, your mother being, I think, a writer and being associated to Leeds as well. Yeah. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong there, but can you tell me about the relationship you have with your mother and maybe your grandmother as well? Well, I know my mum has um, a very special, or had a very special relationship with her grandparents um, when she was growing up. And so I think she was part of promoting kind of the closeness between me and my grandmother. Um, you know, grandparents, grandparents are everything for sure. Um, grandparents everything and um, my mother is a writer herself she's a poet published author and so she's definitely had a big impact on kind of just some choices I've made in life professionally and, and personally to do with and kind of influencing my interest as well I guess it's a bit of nature and nurture at the same time <laughs> Um, so some would say I followed in my mother's footsteps it definitely wasn't planned but somehow I'm here mm -hmm. and being a writer, it helps having a mother who is a writer <laughs> because, um, you know, she knows people and also she's able to give me advice on how it was for her. Of course, it's a change and evolving world. So growing up in the UK, um, it was a different experience for me growing up in the UK, but it's just something that she's been able to advise me on and something that we can share. And also something that goes back to my grandmother, like three generations of black women having these experiences of being black in Britain. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I, I can imagine that could be um, really inform your work, your experience in that lineage there. Um, mm -hmm. I think what I'm, I'm curious about as well, as you're mentioning it is, 
there is something I've, I, I've, I've experienced a few of your pieces and yeah. what I think is really kind of bubbled to the top is this idea of a really strong black woman. And, you know, and I'm going to underline the, the woman there. Um, where do you think that comes from? Do you think that comes from the fact that you are such a close relationship from your, your mother and your grandmother? Or do you think it's just a part of what Rahima, you've always innately had in you? Um, I'd probably say a lot of it is to do with maybe more to do with my grandmother and a lot to do with just society's perception of black women. Like I am that black woman who, who kind of doesn't always want to be the strong black woman. Like I want to be soft and I want to be, um, looked after and I want to be sensitive and I want to cry and you don't always find that you're welcome to be that person. I don't find the space to be that person all the time. And I know that was definitely the same for my grandmother migrating to England in her 20s. Um, um, I think just seeing my grandmother settle into a country, raise all of her children and then raise her grandchildren. Um, and you can imagine the environment and the climate that England was in the 50s for black people and people of color versus how it is now the same as it was probably in the United States. Um, there was so much civil resistance going on and my grandmother was just a, a girl in her 20s just trying to have a different life. I don't want to say a better life, mm. just trying to like have a, find a different life for herself. And so I think just, yeah, being a leader um, is something that I've watched my grandmother too, but she's probably the person that's also given me the space to be a bit soft because she's held a lot of weight for the family. Right. And, um, you know, that's given me permission as second, third generation to kind of find a bit more um, softness, you know? Oh, that's, um, that's beautiful. And I, I, I love the way you've, you've, you've phrased that because it is, it is really res respectful of what, um, you know, the generations have done previously for us all, um, yeah, you know, and yeah. the, the shoes that they had to walk in were far more difficult than the ones we are walking in. But certainly um, we do live in contentious times and it does flow yeah. through in some of your writing. And I will say writing because mm -hmm. I, I do see you as a writer or, yeah. but, um, but it doesn't really matter how I see you. How do you see yourself? These days, I prefer writer just because I feel like it encompasses so much more elements of um, of writing. But for a long time, all of my teenage years, when I got into poetry at 13, um, probably into my 20s, I would have said that I was a spoken word artist simply because I came up through slam poetry. That was my introduction to poetry so I, I don't know if the listeners know but that's kind of like a competitive I'm sure they know a competitive um form of poetry which is heavy on the performance aspect and so I would have definitely considered myself a spoken word um when I finished with kind of the competition side of everything I started to adopt poets um, um because I just wasn't so heavy on the performance although my joy is standing on the stage and delivering the piece to a live audience um but these days mostly because I completed my I just completed my master's degree that I've allowed myself to say hey I am a writer I can 
I can deliver in many types of writing from academic writing um, to creative writing, poetry to spoken word, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I think writer is the is is the more (laughs) yeah is the more appropriate one because of the broadness of what you do no i love it i love it um this is going to be sound like a silly question but but why writing um and i think in a previous conversation we had you had mentioned a little bit of a a love or affection for architecture Uh, yeah (laughs) you know so uh you know i guess what i'm trying to say is you know why why write why do you write um, I think I'm, as a person, I'm quite introspective. Um, and so writing just allows me to um, venture into all of the spaces that I have inside of my head and inside of my body, all the, all the things that I think um, and all the people that I am. So I think writing allows, allows me to kind of explore all of those faces and wear all of those hats. Um, and I think it was just a tool, like I, like I mentioned earlier about my mother, um, being a writer, I definitely would say it's nature and nurture. I always loved reading and literature and short stories ever since I was young, ever since I, I could read, <laughs> I love, I loved, um, reading and I was always ahead of the, the kids, the other kids in class when we'd get homework and the teachers had to give me extra reading to do and I, I just loved it and so I think writing kind of followed naturally and then my mother being a writer and recognizing that in me of course she's she was probably a static and definitely nurtured that in me um <laughs> and a lot of the slam poetry that I did uh, went came through a youth group a youth group that my mother ran it was a youth writing group um, and so I would attend those classes with her. Initially, it was just her taking me to work um, because they were after, after school sessions. And then I just found myself taking part in the classes, engaging in the workshops. And next thing you know, I'm flying around the world. Uh, so yeah, probably, probably that as well. The experiences that writing has afforded me um, have, been, have been priceless. That's amazing. Um, sounds, like a, sounds like a really... Um enriching personal journey but I like to I like to ask it's not a but and rather Mm -hmm. and um what I love to ask people in the creative space such as yourself whether they be writers or other types of perform performers is you know there's this interesting um thing that happens when you create a piece of art whether it's a poem or you perform uh, slam poetry or whatnot Mm -hmm. is this interaction with the audience you are, um, they are on the other side, if you will, so to speak, receiving this. When you are going through your process, do you write, do you create rather with the audience in mind or do you create or are you just creating internally and then sort of putting it out there to the world and sort of like the audience will, will, will be what it is? Yeah, that's a good question because I've, I've been both. Uh, at the moment I I would say I write internally but having and I probably started writing from that internal introspective place um but I would I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that I started to write for the audience reaction like I loved getting those snaps and everything that comes along with slam poetry I wanted the ooh and the <laughs> ah, like 
I wanted that. And also when you're competing, you want to hear 10, 10, 10. Yeah, right. Slam poetry kind of created like a whole different atmosphere of writing for me. And then again, when I left that kind of world, I'd say definitely returned to just being um, writing from a very personal place. Like the audience, I won't say they didn't matter, but it was it was for me. The writing, the writing was for me um but because I have that relationship because I've had that relationship with audiences and I understand them it was that theory that actually influenced my degree which is in audiences engagement and participation that's the name of my master's degree because I've always just been fascinated with the way audiences engage with any art works writing visual works and um they're the only way that any creative could exist as a professional creative and monetize their work is, is on the audience. How many people you can get into a gig, how many people a museum can get through the dawn. So I've always been fascinated with like the particip- participatory side of that. And that might have come from slam poetry, like just having <laughs> that, just yearning for that relationship with the audience. Um, but today I definitely write, I write, for me, my writing looks a lot different than it did, say, 10 years ago. Interesting. So it, it, would, you see, would you say it's an evolution or it's just different? That's also a good question. I'm going to say both because I, I don't want to engage in the poetry wars. Like it's, <laughs> I like the <laughs> world of literature. Um, but I definitely, I, I think I just evolved as, as a person and... Um, it just be I've just been through gone through the emotions, you know. Um, it's like if I was a person that wrote fiction, maybe I want to move on from romance and maybe start to write sci-fi. I kind of right. just see it like that. It's just a, a challenge for yourself, a personal challenge. Oh, I love it. No, I love it. No, that's not a safe response. That's a that's a that's a uh, um, a, a good response. So I like it. I like it. Um, I've I've also read a little bit about uh, something that I think you've you've you started at uh, at Leeds called the Sunday Practice. I believe it is or was on hold because of COVID. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell me about the Sunday Practice and maybe um, you know hopefully there's some good news about it coming back or or not if if the if the the stoppage was was COVID prompted. Yeah. Um, well, the Sunday Practice was is an event that I started kind of by accident because I never intended to have an event really um but some circumstances happened where a bunch of creatives were like hey there's a space at a bar and you can have it for free um one day a month and I was like what okay <laughs> I never do something with it and then I was like me and they're like yeah do something with it and I think again because of the reputation that I built locally from slam poetry um working in schools and colleges as a slam coach so I think people just kind of wanted me to create that kind of atmosphere that was accessible to everybody outside of slam um and so I just took the opportunity and wow did it just yeah. take it just <laughs> took on a, a life of its own and seven years later um, I've been running this event once a month that has afforded me again many other opportunities in producing and programming for larger festivals and events, um, theatres, 
programming poets for their shows and collaborating on larger events. I, I took a team of poets, I'm still using the word team, I took a group of poets to Miami through the Sunday practice, um, like an international collaboration. And Zodware was on that trip with us. That was really cool. We performed that there and Hampton House in Miami. And so, yeah, I've done loads of um, cool things through the Sunday practice as well. It definitely did go on hold because of COVID. Because, um, you know, we couldn't put on any live shows. We did do some Instagram lives, but I, I, I wasn't feeling it. The audience was fine, but I just, I did mm. like a little message on the Instagram stories. I was like, I think I'm just going to take a break because um, it, it was COVID. It was hard. The pandemic was hard. And I just... I just didn't have the mental capacity if I'm being if I'm being absolutely transparent um, and so we haven't done we didn't do anything for a few months and I'd like to think the Sunday practice is just organically just going to take a different shape because we have collaborated with some people throughout the pandemic on digital events we did a show with the British Library which was amazing and if I had to say there was a silver lining to the pandemic it is being able to have that um, national reach um, that maybe we haven't had before. So being able to collaborate with the British Library, which is in the title, you know, it's the British Library, was amazing. And then we've got some work coming up at the end of the year with a different literature festival at the end of this year. And so for me, I feel like the Sunday practices just might look like that for a little while, just doing these um, one-off collaborations with larger festivals who will basically give me money <laughs> to, <laughs> to do what I want. Because I have to uh, say, yeah. running the Sunday practice events monthly, it, it was a passion project. It never paid me. We got the venue for free. The bar made money from from, from people, people coming in, in of course. Yeah, yeah so it was an absolute passion project. If I did make any money, it was in the collaboration with these organisations. And so the fact that they still exist, I'm happy for that. And that is what the Sunday practice looks like. For now. <laughs> For now. Yeah. But you know what? It, it's really, and that's the, I mean, that really speaks to the heart of, of being a creative artist, right? Is that you, st you start something in some cases, it's done for free. It's done out of passion and you never know where those fruits will, will blossom and grow. Right. So right. I believe I read that you had said that, you know, you see artists as activists. Can you elaborate on that? If that, A, if that's true um, and, and B, why do you think that? Yeah, I do believe that. So you probably did read it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, yeah, the writer was not making that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because um, it depends on the content of the art. Um, for example, I mentioned fiction. And actually, what I was going to say is not even going to be true, because then I, I just thought of writers like Chinua Achebe, Nigerian writer, and then um, even Toni Morrison. So I was going to say, maybe you get some art where they're just, it's, it's for the joy of the, of the reader or the person participating with it. But no matter, how, no matter for what reason it's created, 20 years down the line, decades down the line, where we're looking into those pieces of work like, um, as historians, and I mentioned Toni Morrison then, I remember watching something in her recent film, the film they made about her, The Pieces I Am, and they were asking her if she felt like an activist. And I can't remember if she actually said yes or no, but even, oh. even before, a, she, she was an editor first, so even before she published works as a writer, 
think her her very work was seen as activism because she was advocating for for black people or African Americans at that time. Um, and so that's just, and so she's an example of why I would always see a creative as an activist. Um, activism doesn't have to look like picket signs and these days mm-hmm. hashtags are however people choose to, to be activists. It can just be, um, it can just be like, what is your passion in life? What is driving your work? And automatically you're, you are rallying for a group of people whoever that might be, black people, LGBT rights, whatever it is, if you believe in the rights of those people and you want to make a, a daily, you want to make a daily contribution to whatever that is, then you're being an activist. And so for me, I see art as that because we're usually, or myself as a poet, I'm usually covering whatever is going on in the world. Um, I'm just yeah whatever it is I can't even like think of the of the reasons but it just you are being you are being an activist and this is just a thought that I've arrived at in the last few years I never considered myself an activist um but through conversations I've had with people and even speaking at the Black Lives Matter rally in Leeds last year that kind of cemented it for me when I was called as a poet to speak to what turned out to be 15,000 people I thought (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought, well, I guess this is, I guess I'm an activist now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether I wanted to yeah. be or not. I was going to say, as you step to the mic and there's 15,000. Uh, I'm like, well, I, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. So, no, yeah. But I, I like, I like that because it, and it, I think it takes a little bit of a creative mind um, and perspective to understand that nuance of, yeah, you can participate in whatever campaign or fight mm-hmm. or advocacy and in, in your own way, you become an advocate, uh, an activist rather for that. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, I think that you are definitely on the on the side of maybe a more traditional, uh, especially if you're grabbing a mic and there are 15,000 people listening to oh, you. Oh, <laughs> but <I guess. laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. But um, listen, I got like two more questions for you. If you, if you have oh. a few more minutes, this is, I, I feel like I could chat with you for, for quite a while, but I, I want to be respectful of time. Okay. Um, so two more questions. One is, is and I'm going to try and explain this the way I'm thinking, but I typically see art, sorry, how do you see art? Do you see art as a reflection of culture, as a historical like documentation of culture, mm-hmm. or, or in a sense, setting the tone for culture, like being ahead? Yeah, I think art can be both of those things in general I think they can be reflective of the times or you get some artists that are just super innovative and they've they've started something absolutely brand new um or turned you know a form of art on its head and everybody wants to be doing it that way now um but for me I would I would just say my work is probably reflective of the times I definitely write about um how I'm feeling and I'm usually feeling whatever I'm feeling in relation to whatever world event has been happening. And it could be a really personal event, um, but that's, again, that's still writing my own history. I look at my writing from 10 years ago and I'm like, wow, <laughs> I was that person. And I probably wouldn't have remembered having um, that specific feeling at that specific time. And it helps me to reflect on how I've evolved as a person. And also just looking back um, at what was, 
the things that I found interesting at that time, the things that I was writing about, it really um, is really cool to see. So I think I would definitely say I am a historian in that sense. My work is definitely reflective of the times. Um, and I, I like it. I like it that way. But how does your culture show up in your work? Or how do you want it to show up in your work? Hmm, how does my culture show up in my work? Um, that's a good question. Probably when I'm talking about my work being, or uh, will, will be something that could be classed as historical in the future. I guess when it's present, it's not history yet. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even now, I'm even now I'm trying to create a body of work. I've got a commission which is to do with identity and being British and what that looks like for me and um, there's someone with the same there's a point with the same commission and he's Irish I know that he's talking about the Irish migration to the UK um, and so yeah I've just really been thinking about my own family migration and my own history um, and so I'm specifically writing a lot of pieces not necessarily poems but I'm just kind of like free writing yeah. But they've all been about my my grandmother, and uh, who is the person that migrated here from Jamaica. And because I've had the conversation with the Irish poet, and I know that the Irish and the Jamaicans were the two migrant groups that kind of came together in the UK in the 50s. The slogan back then was no Blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Um, and so I'm thinking a lot about that. So I would just probably, that would be an example of how my culture shows up in my work, which is a very literal um, example. Mm-hmm. And if that would probably be the best example I could give right now. I'm sure it shows up in lots of ways, even in my performance, like the way I move, the way, you know, like, yeah, wow, we don't know <laughs> that we do. Um, For sure. It, I've it, never it, thought about it until you've asked me now, so. <laughs> no, but you know what? It, it's it's a really good point, and I love the way you hit on the end of it too. There's there is that little bit of a swag, a little bit of that 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 groove that happens even as you're talking. And yeah. some of it, uh, I know for some for some people, or from for everybody who's listening to this or will listen to this, this is an auditory only experience. Mm. But um, you know, you were you were Rahima was swaying a little bit back and forth <laughs> as if there was some music, and she was you know she was back in Jamaica a little bit uh, <laughs> as you're talking. So it, it does it does flow through. Pardon the pun. Um, what does Rahima mean again? I was going to ask. You, you, you already mentioned it, but I, I forgot to note it down. The most kind and the most merciful. So each um, verse in the Quran will open with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So if you heard Rahim there at the end, right. which is the male version, um, it means God, the most kind, the most beneficial, the most merciful. Amazing. Do you think that is a, a, a supremely appropriate um name and and meaning for how you live your life for sure i i think i'm definitely merciful i have a lot of patience for people and different types of people and opinions i enjoy listening and observing um but my mum did say to me a lot when i was younger that i, I should be kinder to my little brother so i don't know about that part <laughs> <laughs> work in progress it can be a work, in progress. work in what what is that one meal that Raheem was saying like no put put everything else aside this is my number one oh okay as of today 
be assured listeners this might change but if i have to choose one food right now it's not a dish just one specific food it's going to be smoked peppered mackerel again so the same thing as of today um are you feeling that you would like to perform or participate in something would you like to be grabbing that mic with 15,000 people or would you like to be down there with the 15,000 people? Mic. <laughs> I want to be grabbing a mic. As you pose that question, I'm like, wow, I wonder what it is like to be in the audience. But of course, I've been spectators of, of musicians and artists that I enjoy. And I love that feeling like gigging, attending live events is my favorite thing in the world um but i mean i have to be on the stage you know while you are eating your dinner or if if you're maybe dessert what are you watching what is on the telly oh what's on my tv yeah i forgot to ask that was but i'm gonna i paused it to speak with you uh it's housewives the real housewives of potomac oh no yeah so there you have it The conversation continues. Part of our show was recorded and produced at the soundstage and auditory office of 54 Lights. Music for this show was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by our friends at Multiformats. Special thanks, as always, to my guest, Rahima. Thank you for being such a great interview. To the listeners, if you like what you've heard, remember that there's more. As I mentioned earlier, we are closing our season three. I'll have one more episode with thoughts on the year and the season that was. Then, after a slight pause, we'll be kicking off our final ambitious and somewhat extended season four. But until then, I invite you to go into our archives and listen or re-listen anew to previous shows. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss the season finale And of course, the launch of season four, which is upcoming in the next few months. Never forget that if you enjoy some social sprinkled in with your experience, please follow us on Instagram under our handle, Crowd54. On it, you'll find updates, previews, and perspectives on the year and the season to come. Listen, like, share. As always, this is your privileged host, Kandwani Mwase. Until we meet again, thank you for listening.